Sketches from Scripture presents Wandering Wisdom from the Wilderness, a teaching series from the stories of the Torah. Wandering is a teaching series by me, author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. In this podcast, we'll be continuing our exploration of the narrative structure and style of the books of the Torah, focusing primarily on the book of Numbers. This study will give us context for a better understanding of Scripture. It will help us trust more in these Scriptures by demystifying them. Taking the stories from the perceived realm of mythology or spiritual mysticism or religious fairy tale and putting them on the ground where they belong. Real words written by real people about real events and real places, all pointing us to a very real God. I hope this podcast reminds you that even in times of wilderness wandering, the Creator of heaven and earth is with you. If you enjoy this podcast, Please share it with others. In this episode, I reference some images. If you'd like to see those images, you can go to skidmore.substack.com, find the post for this particular episode, and the images will be in the body of that post. You can also share this episode by sharing that page with others. Hi, I'm author and filmmaker Paul Skidmore. You can learn more about my books and movies at skidmorep.com, and I have a blog called Sketches from Scripture, which, other than this podcast, hosts samples of my writing, mostly first draft short stories inspired by snippets of Scripture. You can find it at skidmore.substack.com. Many of the stories you can read for free, but there is a paid tier as well if you're the arts-supporting type. Any support you give is appreciated, whether it's just reading, listening, buying books, t-shirts, mugs paying for the blog, or especially sharing with friends. While I endeavor to live off my creative work, my number one goal is that my creative work help people see God more clearly and trust Him more deeply. One fantastic feature of the Substack blog is the ease and simplicity of adding a podcast feed. I had already been recording some of the short stories I was writing to use as an audio podcast when the pandemic began changing much of our lives. I came to visit my parents for a few days, and that's turned into over a month as I've decided to stay here and help with anything they may need during this time. While being safer at home, I decided to dust off some old series I taught for Sunday school at my church here in Tennessee. I recorded them as Facebook Live videos to a pretty small audience, mostly family and some friends from church. I've cleaned up the beginnings and endings to make a better podcast, but I didn't take the time to do any extensive editing. So you will likely hear me trying to figure out Facebook's interface, open broadcaster software, and other aspects of the process that were new to me. I don't think this will detract from the learning, and hopefully it'll make it feel more personal. Why am I qualified to teach this series? Well, I'm a curious person, and I love story. The content here comes from a lot of my personal study, either in the process of research for stories I'm writing or just for my own spiritual development. While I am professionally a writer and filmmaker, I am merely an armchair historian, armchair theologian. I do have some good scripture study software and use a couple of excellent resources, but I did not go to school for any of the religious stuff. I just love it, and I hope you can hear the passion about it as I talk. I'm thankful to have some of the best theologians alive, Dr. Rick Oster, Dr. David Young, Dr. Michael Strickland, as personal friends, and I've learned so much from them. This podcast series, Wandering, centers on numbers, but looks at the remainder of the Torah, Exodus through Deuteronomy. And like the Light in the Darkness series that focused on Genesis, this series will focus primarily on the masterful narrative storytelling at work in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. My primary resources, other than the Bible, when preparing for this series originally, were... Robert Alter's Five Books of Moses, which is a translation and commentary on the narrative style of the Torah, and Jacob Milgram's Commentary on Numbers from the JPS Torah Commentary series. 
As I've said, this is not an academic work, and so while not academically structured or sourced, I have attempted to give credit where it's due as often as I can, and to avoid reading large swaths of copyrighted material. If anyone has copyright or sourcing issues with anything I've presented, please do reach out, and I'll be happy to make whatever adjustments may be necessary. So without further ado, I'll launch you right into the opening of the first live stream recording of Wandering, Wisdom from the Wilderness. I hope that while you're working or commuting or in the shower or whatever, that this is something that is encouraging to you and educational. Tonight's lesson, we'll be looking at a couple of photos, if I can get that to work. So you might want to be near your screen so you can take a look at those when you have the chance. If you are a believer, I hope that this will increase your confidence in the text, increase your confidence in Old Testament history. We'll be looking specifically at some history things tonight and some maps and some things based on the text. We'll get a little bit academic with some of that. For me, that's fun. I hope that that's also fun for you. Uh, if nothing else, I hope that it is helpful for you to be able to give a defense. Uh, the Greek word apologia, where we get our word apology, means to give a defense. And so there's a, a, a term we say someone is an apologist uh, or, or they're talking about apologetics. And that doesn't mean that they are um, saying that they're sorry for something. What it means is they are giving a defense. That's what the word uh, means literally. Apologia, the Greek word means to give a defense. So if you're doing apologetics, what you're doing is you're giving a defense of some kind. And there are many different kinds of apologetics. There are historical apologetics. There are scientific apologetics. There's archaeological. There's uh, philosophical, uh, logical you know, all kinds of different ways to be able to give a defense. Uh, you can even provide just sort of your own experience. And that might be anecdotal defense, anecdotal apologetics. But it's there, nevertheless, as a tool in your toolkit. So I hope some of the things that we'll talk about tonight will be um, another, just another uh, arrow in your quiver in being able to give a defense for the things that you believe and uh, if you are skeptical, if you're not sure about the Bible, if you think, I don't know that I believe this, I think it's just a fairy tale, I think it's just a religious book, okay, take a look at some of the things that we're going to look at tonight, compare them to some of the things from history that we're also going to talk about, and see if that starts to change your opinion a little bit, at least about the veracity of the events that we're talking about. So um, I'm going to start out with a couple of free tools and I, I mentioned in last night's little one-off lesson called How to Read the Bible, I mentioned some free tools there. just want to give you one more tonight. I'll repeat one from last night. The one I'll repeat from last night is Discovery Bible Study. And you can go to northboulevard.com slash DBS, and I will put that um, in the comments now. Northboulevard.com slash DBS, that's for Discovery Bible Study, and that will really give you all the tools that you need to understand in-depth Discovery Bible Study. There's a link to the Discipleship Handbook also there. There's a link to a lot of uh, Discovery Bible Study, sort of lists of verses that are sort of grouped together by you know a sermon series or some kind of theme or some kind of purpose. Lots of good, helpful things there. Uh, another free app that I want to tell you about that I did not mention last night is the Faith Life Study Bible. Now, I think I mentioned it at some point during the Genesis series that we just completed um, two nights ago. 
But Faith Life Study Bible is a free app for Apple and Android. And it provides you with basically like a, a split screen. So up at the top will be the, the included Bible. It comes with Lexham English Bible, um, which is made by the Logos Bible software uh, folks. It's a really good translation. Um, it'll be sort of the top half of the screen. And then the bottom half of the split screen will be notes. And the Faith Life Study Bible, it's just like any other study Bible you would buy. You know, you might buy like a $60 hardback study Bible that has all these notes and photographs and maps and all that kind of stuff. Faith Life Study Bible has all those things and more, and it's totally free and you should get it. So Faith Life Study Bible, uh, it's really good for studying. Like some English Bible might be a little clunky just for daily reading, but if you or doing your daily reading in the YouVersion app or in your, your paper Bible, and you come across something, you're not really sure what to think about that. You can pull up Faith Life Study Bible and look at the study notes there for that passage. And it just gives you all kinds of great stuff. Timelines, videos, um, maps, artist renderings, word studies, uh, essays on backgrounds of authorship of books. I mean, it's just got all kinds of stuff. It's really great. So free, free app, Faith Life Study Bible. Let's get into the study tonight. So this series coming up, which will probably be about 15 or 16 parts, probably similar to the Genesis series, is another series that I did a long time ago, um, back in, I think, fall of 2017. And it's um, I've really just fallen in love with the Old Testament by doing these studies that I've done and uh, teaching these lessons that I've done. And so I hope that... Um, that rubs off on you. I hope, I hope that you, you share the same passion at the end of the series that I have. Uh, this series in particular, I just really like the book of numbers. I know that's an odd thing to say. I know that uh, I think it was some somebody, I won't, I won't call you out, but I think it was somebody in particular that uh, is watching right now said, um, oh, numbers is so boring. I don't, I don't, I don't want to go through numbers. Well, okay. There's a couple of chapters in numbers, a little tedious to get through when they're actually counting and naming everybody. I, I'll give you that. But there's a lot of things that happen in the book of Numbers that are amazing and spectacular. And it's those things that I want to focus on. Don't worry, we're not going to sit here and, and read all the chapters with all the names and numbers and that sort of thing. Um, but I want you to think about uh, just some of the really spectacular things that happen during the time span that the book of Numbers covers. In fact, we call it the book of Numbers. Uh, that sort of comes out of the Greek name that was given to it. But in Hebrew... The Hebrew Bible names the books by the first phrase or the first word of the book. So Genesis is not called Genesis in Hebrew. It's called in the beginning. Isn't that awesome? And so Numbers is not called Numbers in Hebrew. It's called in the wilderness. Now, which book would you rather read? Numbers or in the wilderness? I don't know about you. I'd rather read In the Wilderness. So that's the book we're going to read is In the Wilderness. So if that helps you to think of it, then we'll think of it that way. But the thing is, you can't just sort of jump right into In the Wilderness. Well, why not, Paul? Okay. The Torah, the, the law, the first five books, the books of Moses, first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they're, they're kind of a five-volume set. It kind of like, it kind of be like a uh, picking up Return of the King and starting with that one instead of reading The Fellowship of the Ring first or reading The Hobbit first, right? Or it'd kind of be like watching um, Star Wars uh, The Last Jedi before going and watching A New Hope or Phantom Menace. Um, it would be like picking up 
I don't know the Harry Potter books, but picking up book five and not starting with book one, you know, it would just sort of assume you kind of know some things if you're at that point in the story. And so if you start there, you're, you're going to be lost. You're kind of not going to know what's going on because it's part of a set. Right. So the first five books of the Old Testament really, really ought to think of as kind of a set. And I've talked a little bit. Everything that we looked at in Genesis was in terms of the storytelling. We should look at Genesis as an encapsulated story, not a collection of a bunch of little stories. It is that, but that there's at least some sort of overall story that is being told because of the way that it's just so perfectly laid out like a story. And what I think that you've noticed as we've gone through Genesis is not only is there this big overarching story in Genesis, but there's also that same really masterful storytelling going on at an episodic level with the story of Noah and the story of Abraham and the story of Jacob and the story of Joseph and Judah, right? So, um, and likewise, within those sort of big master scenes, you have these smaller scenes, right? So you've got... Um, Abram and Lot. You've got uh, Abram and Sodom and Gomorrah. You've got Abram, uh, Abraham and Isaac. You've got uh, all these little smaller stories that each have their own little storytelling to them. So it's sort of like these nested or these Russian nesting dolls, right? So in the same way, when you go back the other direction from Genesis as a story, you got to remember Genesis is one fifth of a five volume work. It is the introduction. It is kind of act one for a five act saga of the people of God, right? And so that's kind of how we're going to look at it. So if we want to look at numbers, well, numbers is part four. In the wilderness is part four of this five volume set. So we're not going to spend as much time in Exodus and Leviticus as we did in Genesis. We're going to concentrate most of our time in the book of Numbers, the book of In the Wilderness. But but I want to get there. I want to fill in the gap between where we left off in Genesis two nights ago and coming into In the Wilderness, because there's a whole lot of important things that happen in Exodus and Leviticus that we need to know before we come into the book of Numbers. So we're going to take a look at that. Why? Why are we doing this? Why study the Old Testament? Is this just an entertaining story? I mean, I, I think it is, but is it just that? Um, what's the point? If we know Jesus, if we know the New Testament, if we know how to do church right and all this kind of stuff, what's the point of really spending time studying the Old Testament, learning the Old Testament? Well, to truly and deeply understand the New Testament and Jesus, and honestly, even all the stuff about how to do church and all that kind of stuff, all of that comes from Jewish people. All that comes from Jewish practice and Jewish culture, Jewish understanding, Jewish religion. So you can't really have a good understanding, a right understanding of the New Testament church, of um, the Holy Spirit, of Jesus, of the Gospels. You can't really understand that unless you know and understand the Old Testament. Gospels speak of fulfilling Old Testament prophecies. Peter preaches from the Old Testament in Acts 2. The first gospel sermon, you know, isn't from Matthew. Matthew hadn't been written yet, right? First gospel sermon is from Joel. Uh, Paul quotes the Old Testament quite often into Gentiles, Gentiles who previously, before coming into the Christian church, would not have been familiar with the scriptures. But when Paul's talking about the scriptures, he's not talking about his own letters because those were still in the process of being written and considered to be scripture, right? He wasn't talking about the, the gospels because uh, with the exception of maybe maybe Mark, uh, gospels probably were not written before uh, Paul wrote his letters. So when he's talking about the scriptures, when Paul's talking about the scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. Uh, the writer of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, 
the Sermon of Hebrews refers to characters of the Old Testament throughout. We mentioned Melchizedek, uh, talked about that at great length when we looked at Genesis chapter 14. But remember Hebrews 11, the great faith hall of fame, and those are all Old Testament people naturally, right? So uh, it's very important that we understand the Old Testament, the story of God, the story of the Old Testament. It makes the New Testament make so much more sense. And as proof of this, I offer you my friend Joseph Shulam, who grew up as a Jew in Israel. And uh, friends of his wanted him to uh, become a Christian. And so they urged him to check out the New Testament. And he, he didn't want anything to do with it as a, as a Jewish Jew in Israel. And finally, he said, okay, fine, I'll read it. So he gets Matthew and he's reading it. And he says, I don't understand. This isn't Christian. This is all Jewish. <laughs> you know, and he goes over to Mark and he goes, oh, this is all Jewish. And he gets over to Luke and John and Acts. Like, oh, this is Jewish. These Christians aren't Christians. They're just Jews. And that's when this light bulb suddenly went off to him that maybe this, maybe this Jesus was a little more understandable than what he had been led to believe. Joe now is the um, preacher at the Christian Jewish church in uh, Jerusalem. And they finally, as of a couple of years ago, were able to buy a building thanks to a changing in the law, uh, in the, in the national law there. And so if I'm not mistaken, this is the first Jewish church building in Jerusalem in the history of the universe, because, uh, before Jerusalem was destroyed, the Christians were all meeting in homes. And uh, this has been the first time that Jewish Christians have gone back there, been recognized as a religion and been allowed to um, have their own church. So uh, if it was convincing for Joe, then it should be convincing for us that the Old Testament is important in helping us understand the New Testament. Um, so like I said, we're going to concentrate mostly on the book of Numbers, the book of In the Wilderness. And so what is the wilderness? Well, uh, just very shortly, we get into the wilderness because... Uh, we'll see in a couple of lessons, they, they send spies in to look at this promised land, the land that God has promised Abraham, Abraham in Genesis. And they come back with a good report about the land, but they're scared of the people who live there, even though God is telling them they're going to have the land. Only two spies, Joshua and Caleb, say, we can, we can do this. We should go. The other 10 say, we, we can't do it. We can't stand up against the people. They didn't have faith in God. The people listen to the 10 and not the two. And because of their lack of faith, they are... Um, punished to wander the desert for 40 years until that whole generation dies out, except for Joshua and Caleb. And even uh, Moses, because of his actions, uh, ends up not being able to go into the promised land. He's able to see it from Moab, but dies on uh, top of Mount Moab and is not able to enter in. And so you have this 40-year period where they're just out in the wilderness. They're out wandering around. They spend about 38 years in kind of one general area and um, just kind of waiting. And there's a lot of woes that happen here. There's some, there's some things that happen to some stories that we'll look at that there's some negative consequences to some things. Uh, they're, they're being punished by wandering in the desert. That's, that's clear in this particular story. Um, but there's some really amazing things that happen. God performs some incredible miracles during this time. The tabernacle, the house of God, the tent of God is with them, and God is visibly with them, leading them through the pillar of fire and the cloud of smoke. This is really the only time until Jesus comes that God is visible and personally, geographically 
tangibly visible with his people. So it was their toughest time, but it was the time when God was visibly closest to them. It's full of woes and wonders together. And that's sort of the, the, the beauty and the, the, the magic of the, of the wandering. That's the, that's the mystery of the wandering is the woes and the wonders together. You know, it's just like, uh, if you remember from the end of the Genesis series, when Jacob is speaking to Pharaoh at the end of his life, and he says, my life has been short and the days have been evil. You know, when he's gotten everything that he wants and his son is back from the dead and, and you could say, well, uh, you know, Jacob, your life has been pretty good. But he says the days have been short and evil. And he's showing us, yeah, it's a happy ending, but it's complicated because certainly there's been much struggle along the way and a lot of rifts in families and 22 years mourning for a son that he didn't know was still alive and uh, the loss of his beloved wife. And it's this our life. Our life is full of woes and wonders all the time. We're seeing it happen right now when you watch the news with everything that's going on right now. We're seeing the worst of people and we're seeing the best of people. We, we are heartbroken at the sickness and the death and we're inspired by the self-sacrifice and the innovation. Woes and wonders together. And when we're all experiencing such woes together, could it be that this is the time that God is closest to us? And that's why I think this series is going to be really timely for the next couple of weeks. We look to as if we're going to have a tough week, maybe a tough two weeks here in the United States of America. And so I think it's really important to understand in our toughest times, that's when God is most visible and that's when God is closest. So let's do just a little bit of history. We'll have a little bit of class here and, um, and I'll just leave you with a couple of final thoughts and this kind of be opening up the series a little bit. So if you got a Bible, if you want to go ahead and, and turn over to Exodus chapter 12, that'll be the first place where we, we will actually begin reading. If you don't have a Bible, you can get Faith Life Study Bible for free. You can get the version Bible app for free. You can go to Bible.com, BibleGateway.com. Uh, should always have some kind of Bible in front of you. I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible when we get when we get to that point. I'm going to look at a. I'm going to refer to a couple of other uh, passages before that, but the first one that we'll actually read together will be in Exodus 12. So, you know, where do you begin the story of the wandering? If you had to begin, well, like I said, Genesis is kind of Act One. Genesis is kind of establishing the world, establishing the characters, establishing the family of God. And now it's kind of turned upside down. Why? Well, we don't realize it at the end of Genesis, but going into Egypt is going to very quickly become a bad thing for the Hebrew people. And so let's look at Genesis just very quick. Genesis chapter 12, God makes a covenant with Abram, who would become Abraham. And he says, through you, I'm going to bless the whole world. And I'm going to give your seed, your family, this land, referring to the land that is um, modern day nation of Israel, this is the Israel-Palestine area. And God says, I'm going to give you and your descendants this land, and you're going to be a blessing to all people. Through your seed will come someone, something that will bless the whole world. We know now he's referring to Jesus himself, but um, it was just a promise 
of a blessing in Genesis 12. So very early on in the Bible, get right into the plot of the story. Right upon meeting Abram, we get this, uh, this covenant, this promise. So we go on through the family of Abram and we see Joseph in, in, in Genesis 46. Joseph ends up in Egypt and eventually Jacob and his uh, sons, the brothers of Joseph, they come down and we, we talked a lot about the reconciliation between Judah and Joseph and um, you know Joseph's sons, uh, Ephraim and Manasseh with Ephraim uh, becoming sort of the blessed son. And you'll see these this terminology used all throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Lots of times you'll see in some of the prophecy books that Israel is sometimes referred to as Ephraim, referring to that oldest of Joseph. Um, and so it's referring to sort of that house of Joseph by talking about Ephraim. And you'll see Ephraim and Judah. Judah is the southern kingdom and Ephraim is kind of um, part of uh, some, some of the rest of it. So what you have is that that playing back and forth between Joseph and Judah, just like you had at the end of Genesis, you'll see that used as a, a metaphor for all the internal struggle within God's people all the way through uh, the, the books of prophecy. Uh, you can go to uh, Hosea chapter 11 is a great place where you'll see the terms you know, Jacob and Israel and Ephraim and Judah sort of all used uh, talk about different parts of the kingdom. So the question arises, did that really happen? Is Joseph a real person? Um, did the Jews really go down to Genesis? You know, one of the big critiques about the Bible is that there's just no evidence that there was anything like a giant exodus of Jewish people out of Egypt. There's no record of it, anything like that. So uh, let's look at some of the things that do exist, and then you can draw your own conclusions. So I'm going to show you a little picture here and go back to our title. And I want to show you this picture of this place here. Now, this is obviously a 3D rendering, okay? But I want you to look at the title at the bottom, Avaris, or as it's known now, Tel El Daba. Um, this is the name of a an archaeological dig that is in the fertile delta uh, plains uh, around the Nile in Egypt. Avaris is an older city than Ramses, the city of Ramses, which if you'll remember from the very end of Genesis, it says that they settled in the land of Goshen and they had this place near the city of Ramses. And I talked even at that time how just because it says the city of Ramses, that doesn't mean the city of Ramses existed already. It was there as a marker for the people who first heard it. You know where Ramses is. Well, that's where this place was. It'd be like if I said, uh, you know, the first people into East Tennessee uh, settled near Cleveland in, you know, 1702. Well, obviously Cleveland, Tennessee didn't exist in 1702, but you know where Cleveland is. And so I'm, I'm, I'm using that as a, as a place marker for you in the present day. So, and, and likewise, um, this, when it says the city of Ramses, it's referring to the general area. So when, as they've been doing archeological digs in the area of the city of Ramses, under the city of Ramses, they found the settlement of Avaris. And what's interesting about Avaris is that the buildings there are Canaanite in structure and not Egyptian in structure. So you'll see even in just, this is again, clearly a modern day artist rendering, but you see in the background there, the sort of the square building, something like what you would imagine seeing in Israel, not something that you would necessarily see in ancient Egypt. Now, you'll also notice in the foreground, there is this small pyramid with the entranceway on the front. Well, this represents uh, a compound that they found, a Canaanite compound, a Semitic people's compound, 
where there were some tombs. One of the tombs was pyramid shaped and had sort of a, an entrance uh, area before you went into the pyramid. So the pyramid itself was the tomb, but there was a, a place in front that you could, that people could could walk in. In this sort of foyer, if you will, to the pyramid, there was the remnants of a statue. Now, the statue had been destroyed. This was not just normal wear and tear. This was an intentional destruction and desecration of this statue. But enough pieces of the statue remained that we're able to learn a few things about it. So let me show you once again, there's the pyramid tomb, and let me show you what was found inside of it. So this is a piece. You'll see the largest um, piece there in the large photo. This is the top of the head of the statue. And so what you're seeing is a mushroom hairstyle in the top of the forehead of the statue. Now, this mushroom hairstyle was a Syrian, Canaanite, Semitic people's hairstyle. It was not an Egyptian hairstyle. So it's very odd to find an Egyptian statue with this kind of hairstyle. And I should say about this statue that this statue is of a seated person, and it's about twice life-size. So this is not just a you know, like a family statue or something. I mean, this is something that is is pretty significant. What's a little harder to see in these photos, and I I have a better photo, but I don't I don't know if I can uh, drop it in. Let me. I'm gonna I'm gonna give it a shot. Let's we'll see what happens. Um, let's see if I can drop it right on top of this here. I was gonna just change that out. I think that's okay. <clears throat> So we've got the, the top of the head. Here we go. So we got the top of the head. And you'll see just below that piece that we were looking at before, there's like a plaster faceless face there. That's just, uh, that's been added later to put these two pieces together. Uh, and the second piece is the piece on the bottom, this shoulder piece. So I don't know if you can see that shoulder piece there. Unfortunately, my, my cursor is not showing up. So you have to just kind of follow along. We're looking in the top left. Uh, picture here. So we've got the mushroom hairstyle and a little bit of the forehead left. And we've got sort of this faceless face that's been added later, just so you get the sense of the dimensions. And then you see the shoulder. Notice there's something that looks kind of like a little knife on the shoulder. Well, that is the top of what is called a flail. And if you've ever seen uh, any kind of Egyptian, you know, like King Tut's uh, sarcophagus, the, the golden death mask, you know, uh, coffin, He's, he's generally holding things in his hands with his hands crossed across his chest. One of the things he, he would be holding is a flail. And what that flail means is that this is someone that had some kind of authority with, with Pharaoh. Now, you'll notice he's not wearing the Egyptian snake headdress. Not, he's not wearing anything Egyptian. So he's not an Egyptian. He doesn't have an Egyptian hairstyle. But he apparently has some sort of power um, within the Egyptian uh, government or royalty. Now, again, it's hard to see on these photos. Now, you can see the two photos at the bottom. What they've tried to do there is you can just barely see in the bottom left photo, there's a little bit of colored paint left on the stone. In the picture just next to it, where the colors are coming out, this is someone has added color on top of it, so you can see what the remaining color would have kind of looked like. So they just kind of um, enhanced. Uh, they've kind of painted on top of it, so you can kind of see what it would look like. But if you look at, if you had the photo and were able to look at the one on the left, you would see those colors are there. They're just little flakes and remnants. But what we see is sort of a striped, a red, yellow, and blue striped garment that this non-Egyptian person is wearing. Also, you would see that there is some red paint in the hair. So this mushroom hairstyle is red hair, which is, of course, where the Egyptians would have dark black hair. This, it was the, um, the 
Canaanite and Syrian, Northern Syrian people that had the Canaanite, I mean, the uh, mushroom hairstyle with the red hair. And the skin, the skin around the forehead area there, what's left of it is got a little bit of yellow paint left. So again, not the dark skin of the Egyptian, but sort of this lighter yellow skin, which is how uh, Egyptians would describe Canaanite Semitic people. So here you have a pyramid structure, pyramid tomb, which indicates this person was important to Egypt, but it's not an Egyptian person inside. It appears to be a Canaanite Syrian Semitic person of some kind based on the mushroom hairstyle, the yellow skin, the coat, which just so happens to have many colors. And he holds a flail across his chest, indicating that he was a person of note within the royalty. And I should add, in this tomb, there was no mummy. There were no bones. What was the last thing Joseph said to his family? But when you leave Egypt, make sure you take my bones with you. So can I tell you for certain, can I tell you for sure that what we're looking at here is a statue of Joseph? No, I can't tell you that for sure. Can I tell you for sure that this uh, is, you know, a rendering of, of the dig that Avaris, that Tel Aldaba is the camp of Joseph? Can I tell you that for sure? You know, I can't tell you that for sure, but it just sure looks likely, doesn't it? Don't you think so? The statue is referred to as the statue of Joseph because most people, you know, make that connection. And I believe the statue is in the Museum of London, the remnants of it. Uh, but I could be mistaken about that. So um, let's look at it, just a couple of other things. Um, so now we have Moses. Moses shows up on the scene. Moses is uh, when it's uh, found out that there's a king born, they decide to kill all the the Hebrew babies. And so uh, Moses is put in a basket and left out to float. And who should find it but Pharaoh's daughter? Pharaoh's daughter draws the baby out of the water. And um, Moses in Hebrew sounds something like uh, drawn out, I believe, is uh, drawn out of the water. And so supposedly that's where he gets the name Moses. And so Pharaoh's daughter takes him in, raises Moses as her own son, brings some of Moses' family in to, to, to be a nurse and to care for. So Moses stays attached to his people, stays attached to his family and his faith. And uh, at some point notices um, a um, an Egyptian mistreating a Hebrew and he murders the Egyptian, thinking no one is the wiser. Later, he sees two Hebrews arguing and he says, uh, brothers, aren't we brothers? Why are we arguing? And one of them says, what are you going to kill me like you did that Egyptian? That Egyptian? And then he realized people knew what he had done and he was terrified. So he ran away. Isn't this like a lot of our characters in Genesis? So again, Genesis serves not only to tell its own story, but serves to set up a lot of things about Moses and the Exodus for us. So uh, it's at age 80 when uh, Moses is... Uh, encountered by the burning bush, which is the Lord speaking to him. The Lord gives him all these instructions. Moses is really kind of pushing back. Well, why do you want me to do this? And isn't someone else better suited? And let my brother Aaron go. He's a better speaker. And he's got all these sort of questions and, and, and pushback. But eventually he accepts the call of God, the God who says, I am who I am. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. As if to say, you go with me or not, Moses, but I'm finding somebody and I'm picking you. So I want you to go. So uh, Moses goes and goes to Pharaoh to get the Egyptians released. They're in slavery now after 400 years of living in Egypt. This is a Pharaoh that isn't aware of Joseph, doesn't know about what good Joseph did 
for Egypt or doesn't care or both. And so uh, this is also now not the same Pharaoh who was Pharaoh when Moses was born. Moses is 80 now. So now we've gone through a couple of generations. So one question would be, who is the Pharaoh at this time? A question, uh, I'm actually writing a book that kind of happens during this time. And so I thought, oh, this is easy. I'll just look up who was the Pharaoh during this time. It was actually rather disputed <laughs> who the Pharaoh was. So a lot of people will say, well, it was Ramses, Ramses II. And the reason they do that, again, is because in both the end of Genesis and in Exodus, it mentions that the Jews helped build the city of Ramses. Well, again, that doesn't necessarily mean they helped build this current modern day to the first people hearing it city of Ramses. It means they helped build a city that is where the city of Ramses is. So it more likely means they helped build the city of Avaris, which is under the city of Ramses. That is to say older, about 200 years older. So because of that, many people will date the Exodus much later than a lot of biblical scholars will date the Exodus. So people basing it on the idea that the Jews helped build the city of Ramses will say, well, your Bible says they helped build the city of Ramses. The city of Ramses was built you know, in 1250 or so. That's when the Exodus should have happened. We don't see any evidence for any kind of mass Exodus. We don't see any evidence for large numbers of Semitic people living in Exodus, uh, living in Egypt at that time. Well, if the Exodus actually took place in 1450 BC, 200 years previous, which is when biblical scholars, the conservative biblical scholars, think the Exodus took place, 1456, I think is the year, BC. If that's when the Exodus took place, then of course there's not Semitic people in Egypt in 1250 BC. They've been gone for 200 years. Of course, you're not going to find any evidence of it. So when you hear people say, well, there's no evidence of an Exodus, you got to start asking some questions. Well, what date are you putting on the Exodus? Why are you putting that date on it? What's your evidence for that date? Probably the people saying there's no evidence for an Exodus don't have answers to those questions, haven't thought about it in the same way as there's many Christians just walking around, not able to defend what they believe. A lot of people who are anti-Christian, you know, don't many, many can't defend what they believe either. Some can. And so you might find yourself in a situation where somebody's done some study and they have some pretty reasonable explanations for some things. Let's take, take, take a look at some pretty reasonable explanations for the Exodus itself. So I've already shown you Avaris. You can do your own uh, research on that, on the Joseph statue and when those things would have come around. There's a little bit of research out there. By the way, those are relatively new finds. This is not like ancient history. I mean, this is, this is some new stuff. Uh, with uh, just a little bit of time left, I do want to look a little bit at the Exodus itself. So let's go ahead and look at Exodus chapter 12. And verse 29 is where I'll begin. Now at midnight, the Lord struck every firstborn male in the land of Egypt. This is the 10th of the 10 plagues that God sent upon Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and every firstborn of the livestock. During the night, Pharaoh got up, he along with all his officials and all the Egyptians, and there was a loud wailing throughout Egypt because there wasn't a house without someone dead. He summoned Moses and Aaron during the night and said, get out immediately from among my people, both you and the Israelites, and go, go worship the Lord as you had said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have asked, leave, and also bless me. Now the Egyptians pressured the people in order to send them quickly out of the country, for they said, we're all going to die. So the people took their dough before it was leavened and their kneading bowls wrapped up in their clothes on their shoulders. The Israelites acted on Moses's word and asked the Egyptians for silver and gold items and for clothing. And the Lord gave the people such favor with the Egyptians that they gave them what they requested. And in this way, they plundered the Egyptians. The, the Israelites traveled from Ramses to Succoth, 
which is a word that just means tents. So it could just mean a place where they camp for the night. Uh, we're not really sure where Succoth is. Uh, about 600,000 able-bodied men on foot besides their families. So it's not 600,000 people. It's 600,000 adult men. So, and it says able-bodied men. So it might, need, it might not even be counting the elderly men. So we're probably looking somewhere in the neighborhood of you know, two to three million people. That's a lot of people. And also, verse 38, a mixed crowd also went up with them, along with a huge number of livestock, both flocks and herds. That phrase, a mixed crowd, in the Hebrew, uh, it's pronounced Ereb Rab. Do you hear it? Ereb Rab, kind of like riff raff, right? Okay. And uh, it just means a little bit of everybody. So you have not only the couple million Jews that are leaving, but you have a lot of other people that say, I don't know what's been going on in Egypt the last few days, but I'm going with them. And so they go along with them. So as we read farther into the story of the Exodus and the wandering, remember, it's not just the Jews, but you do have some of these other people that are sort of mixed in and could be maybe some dissenting voices from time to time. And we see that they uh, are baking their dough, what we would say is, you know, like unleavened bread or matzah, um, become, the, become known as the bread of affliction for Jews. And um, they leave Egypt. Um, now, tomorrow night, we're going to get into a little more of the Exodus, a little more of um, the Exodus route and some of those things. We'll talk more about Passover. Passover is coming up Wednesday night, Wednesday night, so we'll talk some about those things. But here's what I want to leave you with so far, even though we're just kind of going over some history stuff, some setup things, just getting us into the wilderness. As we look at the wilderness, we're going to see a time when God gave his people freedom from slavery. He gave them identity as a people. He gave them a law. He gave them assurance. He gave them proof, miracles and signs. He gave them sustenance, uh, manna. He gave them discipline, quail, quail coming out of their nose, uh, the wandering itself, plagues. He gave them purification, the serpent on the staff, uh, water from a rock. He gave them leadership, Moses, Aaron, priests, elders, judges. He gave them order. He gave them a society. He gave them a nation. But most importantly, he gave them himself. He appears greatly in Exodus 19. He comes down and um, just uh, fills the tabernacle with his glory when the tabernacle is built. And he remains with them, the pillar and the cloud, always visibly with them night and day. In the wilderness, we will see the people are weak. They're complaining. They're hungry. They're afraid. They're prideful. They're disobedient. They're mutinous. They're selfish, they're short-sighted, and at times totally faithless. But they're also fed, watered, led, protected, taught, purified. Their cloaks didn't wither, their sandals didn't wear out. They received the greatest law, and they were in the presence of the one true God. And though they wandered, they were not alone. 
And so they became wholehearted, strong, faithful, God's people. From them, a great nation would grow. And out of that nation, a king would rise, the savior of all people. Tough times are difficult. And a lot of us right now are trying to figure out this time that we're at home. Some of us really hope to be productive and really crank some things out. And we're finding out it's hard for some reason. Just psychologically, it's difficult to focus on new tasks or learning new things. And we're trying to learn a new language or play a musical instrument or get our books written or uh, do some business or work from home, those kinds of things. And it's just not as successful as we thought that it might be. Um, and some of us are just looking through this time to, for it to be over. And what are things going to be like on the other side? And how, when, when are we going to go back to normal? And when are we going to get all the businesses back open? When am, when am I going to be able to go to the store, buy toilet paper again? When am I going to be able to get out of here? When is this going to be done with? And uh, it's easy to feel sort of both of those things at once even. But the thing about the wilderness is that it wasn't just a punishment. It was a discipline. God did not wipe out the Jewish people, but he raised up a nation of people who were wholehearted and who were obedient and who never knew anything but the presence of God. That's a really remarkable outcome for what on the surface seems like dire wilderness. Here, we're about to have some dire times the next couple of weeks, but I hope that we can seek God during this time. And rather than just waiting it out and getting through it, I hope that we will wander with God. You remember when we talked about Jacob wrestling and we said Jacob didn't wrestle against God, but he wrestled with God. He embraced God. He begged for a blessing. And if we wander with God, I think we're going to see some really incredible, wonderful things. I'm going to leave you with one last short scripture from John chapter one. If you want to turn over there, you can. John chapter one, beginning in verse 35. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and noticed them following him, he asked them, what are you looking for? And they said to him, Rabbi, teacher, where are you staying? Jesus replied, come and see. Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.